0: Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler, presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy.
1: I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's so Come Follow Me Insights, today, the General Epistle of James. This is a gem
0: in the, in the Scripture canon. The Epistle of James is one of my favorites because it's so unique on so many levels. If you're ever needing to give a spiritual thought in a meeting, you can pretty much turn to the epistle of James, randomly put your finger down and start reading. It's it's kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's just a whole bunch of really, really inspired sayings, and in some cases, one-liners, that are just, they're power-packed. And let's, before we dive into to any of the actual verses, let's give some background here. Who is James? Tradition holds that this particular James who wrote this letter is not the brother of John, the, the two sons of Zebedee, some of the, the original apostles of Jesus, James and John, that worked with Peter, but rather this James tr- Christian tradition holds is the
1: half-brother of Jesus. That's really makes it super exciting. We're talking about, we're listening to somebody who grew up with Jesus and would have known him intimately. intimately. And when I look at this, I think, am I hearing more of a family gospel lesson that Jesus may have been teaching his own brothers?
0: Which is fascinating because we know from, from the, the book of the Acts that none of Jesus's brothers believed in his divinity during his ministry during his lifetime it's only after his resurrection that there are some powerful experiences had by James and probably Jude uh one of the other half brothers that actually turn the corner for them as far as their conversion is concerned and then James this this half brother after this conversion goes to Jerusalem and he very quickly becomes the leader of the the group of Christian Uh, saints in Jerusalem, the capital city. He becomes kind of the head of what we've termed in, in previous episodes as the Judaizers. James is kind of the leader of that group. So these are Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem who are being persecuted by the leaders of the Jewish faith, at that time, the, the the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, that uh, also tried Jesus. They're they're going to bring these Jewish Christians under intense persecution. Remember, Stephen was stoned under the direction of the leaders of the Jews, and all those persecutions going out with Saul, who then became Paul. That's all directed by the leaders of the Jews against this group that they see as a breakoff, And now James, um, incidentally, what is his name in Greek? Yeah, it's Yaakov or or Jacob. So now let's set the stage for for trying to to better understand the words. If we understand the context, then the content in the, the epistle of James will probably make a little more sense to you. Knowing that he is the leader of this group that we have termed, the Judaizers, which, keep in mind, this is the group that would go out into the diaspora, into the the Greco-Roman world of the Mediterranean region, and they would tell Gentile Christians that they needed to live the law of Moses more fully and completely to be a true Christian, that they would, they would need to kind of be proselytes to the Jewish traditions first. And so Paul has been pushing against a lot of this influence. Well, now you come to this epistle and you're going to see that it it pushes in a slightly different direction, a very predictable but different direction than what Paul has been pushing at first glance. But if you look at it in its in its bigger context, you realize, oh, wait a minute, this isn't a competition between James and Paul. They're not teaching different gospels. They're not they're not fighting doctrinal. They're not having a Bible bash. You can see how in their context they're both teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to slightly different audiences for slightly different reasons to solve slightly different problems or address different concerns. So Let's be careful that we don't say, okay, now you have to pick either Paul or James. It's, it's beautiful in the gospel when you can see how, even though at first it may seem to be a mutually exclusive, true doctrines of the gospel are not mutually exclusive. It just means if they feel like that, it means we haven't paid the price yet to see how they are complementary doctrines because the more time we spend in the scriptures reading all of them and trying to understand them in their historical setting, as well as their their modern day relevance, then you see how they come together, which is exactly the case here. Now, keep in mind, it was Martin Luther who was this great reformer, and we love what he did, but keep in mind, he's the one who said, anything associated with anything at all that I need to do He would reject it out of hand. Consequently, when he comes to the epistle of James, he calls it an epistle of straw. He says it's not scriptural. It doesn't belong in the Bible. He hated this book. Why? Because this book is filled with things that we need to be doing as disciples of Christ, and he was distancing himself from any doctrine associated with anything that that we do to,
1: to... move along any kind of a covenant path so we just want to put martin luther in context and understand that his emphasis what mattered a lot to martin was receiving god's grace it seems that paul also emphasized that gospel principle a lot there's other gospel principles that shouldn't be forgotten and james talks about them we find them throughout the books of proverbs and in other places so if you had a keyboard in front of you and you decided i'm only going to stick to just two keys those might be really beautiful notes, but it actually limits your ability to have a, a full performance. If Paul has a few notes and James has a few notes, together you have more of a complete story. And so as we read the scriptures, we want to read more holistically. Yes, we want to hear from Jesus' perspective and from Paul, but not think that in the end, I have to select which gospel is true. Jesus is the God of all truth and not just portions of it, of it.
0: Lovely. So, as we jump in, Taylor already mentioned this, but now keep in mind, one of the, the lenses that you could put on as you're reading the General Epistle of James is you could say, hmm, I wonder if this particular book of Scripture could give me a backstage pass into the, the daily living of Jesus Christ possibly better than any other book because it's written by his half-brother who was raised with him and saw what kind of a person he was day in, day out over three decades. And when you read it that way, it's fascinating because then all of these little principles that at first glance might seem to to you to be disjointed proverbial wise sayings, all of a sudden become repeat angles, different angles, on what it truly means to live like Jesus Christ lived his life. So, all of them are are new lenses through which we can view the Savior Jesus Christ and start working more and more with him on developing some of those same characteristics and and attributes in our own life. So,
1: I love doing that with the the Epistle of James. That's why it's one of my favorites. And another way of looking at this, think about a short, pithy, meaningful statements that you see online or perhaps you want to put in the fridge or on a wall that are inspiring or encouraging or just a basic point of wisdom that helps you live a better life imagine you went and collected 100 or 150 of those and you put them all together into a short pamphlet we shared with your family this is a bit of what we see with james now james is more structured than that but in some ways he's gathering all these great pithy encouraging statements of just very many case studies of how you can live more like Jesus Christ. So as you are reading through this, you can be asking yourself, what is one piece of wisdom I can find today to be more like Jesus Christ? And if you just took one verse a day, you'd have plenty of things for days to come to be working on.
0: Amen. So let's jump in. We dive into verse 1. James, or Jacob, uh, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So notice his audience. It's a different audience than we've seen before. He very clearly states, I'm writing to the scattered tribes of Israel, those who are scattered abroad. So it's to the house of Israel, the Jews, and the scattered
1: tribes. I love that his name is Jacob. Jacob in the Old Testament had his name changed to Israel. So when we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, you would actually call them the 12 tribes of Jacob. Now, I don't know, but I wonder if Jacob, the half-brother of Jesus, really identified with Jacob, Patriarch Jacob, and felt the sense of ownership or stewardship over the 12 tribes of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel. It was his job to help people understand. The whole point of all these covenantal relations is to be connected to Jesus and to God through Jesus. So in verse two, he opens by saying, my brethren,
0: count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now, if you look at the footnote there, the Joseph Smith translation shifts that from diverse temptations to many afflictions. We could see these as the trials, the tribulations.
1: Just the realities of life.
0: Yeah. Now, now, think about this from the perspective once again, putting on the lenses, looking for Christ. Do you think that His life from age zero to thirty-three was one of just nothing but peace and prosperity? Or do you think that He and His family ran into many diverse uh, afflictions and trials and tribulations? And then He says, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing.
1: Complete and, mm-hmm. and
0: if You Viewerful, this idea that if you're going through a, a major trial, opposition, difficulty in your life right now, instead of shaking our fist at heaven saying, why are you doing this to me? Perhaps we could look at heaven and say, what would thou have me learn from this? So that I don't just go through this trial, but that I can actually grow through it, so that I that I can become more like the savior in enduring that suffering and enduring it well. Which now brings us to one of the most famous verses of scripture
1: uh, for Latter-day Saints. And it may also be the thesis statement for James, that the gospel is about being wise. Those who follow Jesus and learn about him are the wise ones. And that's what he's encouraging here. And I love that it kind of serves as the foundation for the restoration.
0: Isn't that, that's the point here, is that here's this epistle that was written generally from a guy named Jacob, named after the the original father of the 12 tribes. And it's written to the 12 tribes. And it's the means whereby the great gathering effort of the latter day dispensation of the fullness of the times. It is the launch pad for this gathering effort in the latter days. It's it's this verse that is going to send that young uh, farm boy, Joseph Smith, into a grove that we now call sacred. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. I love that, that Joseph didn't just read this and run out the door into the grove. He tells us in his own words that he reflected on this again and again. Sometimes in our scripture study, it, it's pretty easy, isn't it, to read a passage and then let it go, move on. I love the fact that you find this pattern of prophets frequently in scripture and in modern days as well, where they'll... A scripture will just kind of lodge itself in their mind and they'll mull over it. They'll reflect on it. They'll think on it. And it sinks deeper and deeper into their soul, into their heart. And that opens the door for revelation. And in this case, the greatest vision of our dispensation, that first vision of the Father and Son coming to appear to Him.
1: Sometimes we get so excited hearing about Joseph Smith's experience, and we should be, that I wonder if we miss that we all have the same invitation, that we also can sup at the table of the Lord, get wisdom directly from Him. And we should have no fear. It says here, God will never treat poorly, upbraideth not anybody who seeks wisdom from Him. And you have to go with faith, meaning I believe that God wants to share His wisdom with me. And I, my guess is that all of us, if we could look carefully in our own lives, could identify times when we did seek after the Lord's wisdom and he delivered to us.
0: That's a that's a really important reminder to, to follow the Savior's example here. When, when he went out to be alone with the Father, you can't picture him going out thinking, well, I'm going to be alone. I don't think God's going to answer me, but uh, I'll just try it anyway. It, no, look at verse 6. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. So again, our focus isn't just on Joseph Smith. Our focus isn't isn't just on prophets through the history of time. All of those people, all of those stories, should be funneling our vision and and directing our focus to the ultimate example of all, which is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment of verse 5 and 6. And and hopefully it comes full circle, as Taylor's been saying, back to us. I'm trying to be like Jesus. Well, verse five and six gives me a beautiful pattern to start modeling my life more fully after his. Now you'll notice, much like the Proverbs, like we said, it, it kind of feels disjointed. It feels kind of choppy, like, like Taylor was saying, you, you pull a whole bunch of wise sayings together and, and you kind of compile them. That's, that's how it kind of feels. Well, look, so so he gives you, for instance, verse 7 and 8. They kind of cluster together. And then verse 9 opens this new idea. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. And you're saying, wait a minute, James, did you mean what you said? Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Wait a minute, if he's of low degree, how is he exalted? Think about Jesus' upbringing. A man who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Who is despised and rejected of men, and how exalted he ultimately becomes. It's this, it's this pattern of even if you don't have all of the, the riches that this world has to offer, whether it be in money or fame or possessions or clothing or opportunities or education, whatever it may be, so if you recognize who we really are and who God really is, the, the world's measuring rods don't matter because. We can be exalted in Christ, regardless of what we get out of this world. Look at verse 10. But the rich, in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. So it's this proverbial statement of whoever loses his life or gives away his life shall gain the eternities. But who finds his life and holds on to it selfishly is going to lose it all, at death. And he's, he's making that very clear.
1: And we, we change the theme a bit when we get to verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. It's about that we all deal with trials and challenges. The word is temptation in English, but it's really testing or even affliction. If you look at the wisdom here that James is sharing is that don't think that somehow your life has gone astray if you are diff- dealing with difficulty. And it's okay. We all struggle. But don't allow yourself to be overwhelmed. Let's just read a couple of these. Verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away with his own lust and enticed. Meaning, we can work in advance to protect ourselves from evil that we may experience. Now, we can't forestall everything bad that could happen in life, but we can choose in advance to not go into locations or situations that are going to create temptation. And I think this is one of the wise sayings that James is trying to help us with, that we can use our agency in advance to find wisdom by avoiding temptation.
0: And now we shift into a different uh, topic. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. It's that this concept is picked up beautifully in the Book of Mormon in uh, Moroni chapter 7, when he talks about, I'll show you the way to judge. And, and if if something invites you and entices you to do good and to believe in God, then you can judge. it's It's of heaven. It's of good. And if it entices you or invites you to turn away from God or to do evil, you can know perfectly that it's of the devil. So once we are blessed with the spirit of discernment to know whether something is from above or below. Notice verse 21, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Such beautiful wisdom literature
1: here that he's sharing with us. And then he builds on it with what we can actively be doing, specifically verse 22, very short and pithy. Listen to what he says but be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only." Now, can you
0: see why somebody in in Martin Luther's perspective would not like this? But keep in mind, even if you were to say, well, I'm gonna just go with what Paul said. Well, most of Paul is focused on things that we need to be doing as disciples of Christ to become more like him, to strive to, to emulate his example in our life. Most of Paul's writings are focused on the doing, and then a little bit on the grace aspects, which are incredibly important. Again, we're not forced to make a decision between two false dichotomies here. All of these doctrines fit beautifully together, not in competition. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ himself tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, the wise men build his house upon the rock. And how do we know he's a wise man? Because he heard and he did the things he heard. And the foolish man simply heard and didn't do the things. So it ties in beautifully with something that I wonder if James heard Jesus use phrases like we're seeing in his book here that aren't recorded in the gospel accounts or in Acts. But James grew up hearing them and so we're getting, again, a backstage pass or a behind-the-scenes look at the way Jesus approached his life and his family. Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving own them selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man, beholding his natural face in the glass. So he's looking in the mirror, and he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Isn't that beautiful? He's bringing in identity here. It's who is that person looking at you in the mirror? It's not just flesh and bone. It's not just a mortal, natural man or natural woman. It's a child of God with divine identity, which means we can't rely on things of the flesh and blood to tell us how to live our life. We have to rely on the things from heaven, from above, to teach us who we are and how to act. And what to say and where to go and how to live our life.
1: And furthermore, if you look in the mirror, the mirror actually does not fully define who you are. If you get to the pearly gates and you showed Peter your image in a mirror, that probably is not what's going to get you into the kingdom of God. But rather, have you been a doer by receiving and accepting what God has to offer, right? His image in our countenance. So there's kind of some playfulness going on here, I think, with this image. So, well, <laughs> this this imagery that he uses about images. I, I
0: love it. Have you received his image in your countenance? Increasingly as you look in the mirror, as you walk that covenant path, the more you will see reflected there the light of Christ in your own eyes. Your words will become more like his words. Your, your, a view of life will be more in line with his perspective. Which now brings us down to the closing of chapter one, where he introduces this idea that's going to be picked up again uh, in chapter three of the tongue. In verse 26, he says, if any man among you seem to be religious and he bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain.
1: Or empty or useless.
0: And if you look at that, the, the, the word religion
1: is fascinating. Yeah, I remember once looking at this in the Greek, and the underlying meaning of this word has something to do with the the public expression of devotion. Now, we do know in other parts of the gospel, we're told you shouldn't be trying to show off when you're being religious. But at the same time, religion or expressions of religion are not simply meant to be things that are only done in a closet. And this seems to be a case where God is asking people, I invite you to do public displays of religion, not so that you can be seen of men, but because there are things that are public acts. They might be for private individuals. Like, for example, visiting the fatherless and the widows. Now, you might go visit somebody in those circumstances, and nobody else knows about it except God and the people you're visiting. But this is more than just sitting at home, reading your scriptures. Being at home, listening to an audio book of scripture is a good thing. But James says, be a doer. Let's get up and be about embracing and living the gospel in our lives. So
0: his, his definition here in verse 27 is so beautiful and it's so simple. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So it becomes, it literally becomes this connecting point between heaven and earth. And and technically, if you break this word up, religion, to to reconnect, if you look at its roots, you're reconnecting with God. That's what, and if religion isn't connecting you with God. Then we need to rethink how we're approaching that religion. We need to th- rethink the, the way we're worshiping because it should be a connecting with God and, as Taylor mentioned, also a public ability to connect with our neighbor and love our neighbor as ourself.
1: Which is a big part of what the letter, the General Epistle of James is about, is he's actually quite a pragmatist. He says the gospel is fundamentally love God, love your neighbor, and he gives lots of many case studies of wise sayings of how we can demonstrate love to God and love to our neighbor, including loving yourself, because you should also be a good neighbor to yourself. Which I I hope
0: you don't get tired of hearing this. But I wonder why James wrote verse 27. I wonder if he observed things in the Savior, Jesus Christ's life. I wonder how many times James watched Jesus growing up, going around, visiting the fatherless and the widows in their afflictions, and keeping himself unspotted from the love. So let's jump into chapter 2, verse 1. It says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. And if you look at the footnote here, uh, verse 1a, the Greek note says, not with partiality have the faith of our Lord. And Joseph Smith changed it to say, You cannot have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and yet have respect of persons, which is much clearer here. So, really quickly, some people have wondered, what in the world is he saying, respect of persons, or a respecter of persons? It's a phrase we don't usually use in, in modern culture. It's a very powerful scriptural context, which is easiest to describe this way if somebody came up to you this week and said, hey, your ministering brothers are going to come to your house on Thursday at at 5 p.m., what would your response be? You say, okay, great, they can come over. And what would you do in your house? Versus this example, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, the prophet of the church and one of the 12 apostles is going to come to your house this Thursday at 5 p.m., what would you do? Or the leader of your government, wherever you live, they're going to come to your house at 5 p.m. on Thursday. What would you do? The reality is, is we're pretty much respecters of persons or titles. We pay attention to worldly uh Prowess and position and titles. And we would treat very differently our, perhaps, our neighbor coming to our house versus a dignitary coming to our house. And James is teaching this doctrine that with God, he is not a respecter of persons, which is such a refreshing doctrine, which gives me hope that when I kneel down to say my prayers, I don't have to feel like I'm competing with prophets and apostles to get the Lord's attention or with presidents of countries or sports stars or movie stars or famous people.
1: Or anybody else who might be suffering and struggling.
0: That we are all alike unto God. And if we want to be more like the Lord, then James is inviting us to now start practicing being less of a respecter of persons. And an easy way to do that, he just got through telling you the fatherless, the widows in their affliction, people who can probably do nothing to repay you, give you nothing in return for any service or charity that you bestow upon them. That's a good way to start practicing being not quite so much a respecter of persons, is treat all with kindness love respect and and charity to the best of of our ability so take that concept now and read on your own chapter 2 verse 1 through 13 looking for that principle and how you might find ways to apply it that's a powerful little segment of scripture there on, on not being a respecter of persons
1: and our next segment will be Chapter two, verses fourteen to twenty-six, and it's all about what faith looks like when we're not just sitting around. This this is
0: one of the most powerful sections in all of Scripture to show the beautiful relationship, the the cooperative nature between faith and works, because often again we live in a in a culture in a society that almost breeds false dichotomies and and creates extreme positions and then says, now you have to pick your side. You're either in camp faith and grace or you're in camp works. And they create it as if one is bad and the other is good and there's no no cooperative work going on between the two of them.
1: It's like cutting Jesus in half and saying, which side do you want and which side will you abandon? I want all of them.
0: It would be like saying, okay, which side of the scissors is the most important, which blade? And the reality is is we're not going to be able to do anything if we isolate one of these attributes of the gospel at the expense of the other. They have to come together. So look at verse 14. What does a prophet, my brethren, though a man may say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? It'd be like saying, I'll I'll pray for you, but I have the means to help you, but I'm not going to help you. I'm going to pray for you. I have faith that things are going to work out for you.
1: Or perhaps more mundane, uh, I go to a church activity and I bring sugary treats, and then I pray that they will bless my body. That, that does take great. a lot of faith.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Now, here's the 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 two-verse um proverbial statement to sum this idea up. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Now Pause. Time out. Take a step back from this, and now put this in the context of the the bigger first century Christian world. Keep in mind, Paul was traditionally writing to uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, all in different bodies of the church, different uh, branches or wards of the church, in different locations in the Greco-Roman or pagan world. And so a lot of the themes he's picking up and sharing with them are to push against some of the Judaizer influences in some of those areas because they're, they're trying to get those Gentile Christians to become
1: more Jewish. And the pagan world had a lot of works about all sorts of sacrificial systems you had to do to call down the powers of whatever God you're worshiping. And you can think about Paul. He's like, hey, let's just get first fundamentally correct that you have to be good with Jesus. You walking through a whole bunch of ritual actions on its own won't save you. In that regard, Paul was quite inspired to encourage people to focus on faith in Jesus Christ instead of, I got to run down to the local temple and make sure I sacrifice the right thing to Jupiter so I can have a good deal in my business dealings.
0: And so now, in contrast to that, you get James writing his letter to uh, Jewish Christians who maybe are getting caught up in this idea of, oh wait, maybe I can completely abandon all works because the idea of none of my works are going to save me is taking root. And he's saying, be careful. And now you can see how it's not a false dichotomy because Paul isn't pushing against the works that Jesus has asked them to do in the Gospels, or what we've called the law of the Gospels. Paul is not pushing back against that. In fact, He's, he's promoting it over and over again. And now James here is reminding these Jewish Christians be careful that you don't sit back now and say, oh, well, I guess I don't need to do anything. He's saying, if a man say, Thou hast, hast faith and I have works, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And then he gives, one of the most incredible uh, statements on this topic that I know of. Verse 19, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. This is one of those, those moments of, of power and clarity where he's making it so crystal clear that if you believe in God, even if you know that God is there, well, guess what? Even the devils believe that. Even the devils know that, and they tremble at that. The difference is the devils believe, but they don't do anything about it. And th- this to me is a powerful reminder that if I want to become more like the Savior Jesus Christ, then I need to follow his teachings not the philosophies or the interpretations of the world. So now you look at examples from the life of the Savior and the the teachings of the Savior, where he says things like, if ye love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say, if ye love me, just believe in me. Or, if ye love me, just gain a testimony of me, and that's it. Stop there. To know about god or to have a testimony of god is absolutely necessary but it's not sufficient the devil is even to have that knowledge but it's not rooted in real faith because if it were that assurance level of faith that Elder bednar has talked about would then lead to the action level of faith we then do the things that the savior has asked us to do And then he gives an example of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And it was that faith that was manifest in the works that helped him to become known as a friend of God. verse 23.
1: That's a really powerful phrase. A friend of God is actually a covenantal phrase, meaning that God has embraced you at the level of not a subordinate, but as an equal. It's really quite significant. And God wants all that for us. That's why as children of Abraham, we all have the the same opportunity, same gift, same blessing that we can become friends of God. And this word, Abraham believed God, you could also say Abraham trusted God. You might remember during the Old Testament year, we really spoke a lot about this, that God was, among other things, attempting through the ancient scriptures to demonstrate he is a trustworthy God. You can trust him. So if you can trust that God is who he says he is, you can act in faith and know that things will turn out. So that is how faith informs action. Now, again, we all found a war in heaven, so we could get down here and act. We are now here to show that we trust God through our actions.
0: Now, isn't that amazing that you have you have these two things, these two principles or could we even call them uh, aspects of deity, aspects of God. You have the laws of God, and you have the love of God. And the world that we live in today is increasingly beating the drum of pick your side. Either you take God's love or you take God's laws, but not both. As if you have to pick, this is a, what you'd call a fool's choice. It's a false dichotomy. Because God's love is not separate and distinct or individual, uh, individually isolated from his laws. The fact that God loves us means that he gives us laws. Because without that, all we're left with is the person staring at us in the mirror trying to decide how to live our life. And that's not going to go very well. So, we get God's laws as a sign of his love and realize, oh, it actually fits together. They're not separate. President Dallin H. Hokes has talked extensively about the love of God and the laws of God being together, not isolated. So, this idea of faith and works, same thing. So, some of you may have loved ones who are struggling with different aspects of moral life different challenges that they're facing. And if we're not careful, it will start to feel like you have to then pick between loving your child and loving God, or loving your child and staying as a faithful member of the church. Brothers and sisters, this this is not a decision you have to make. The trick is to figure out how do you love God and love your child and still uphold the laws of God. When Lehi was eating the the fruit of the tree of life, he saw that two of his sons wouldn't come and partake. He didn't leave the fruit of the tree of life to try to help his sons. He stayed at the tree and he kept beckoning and he kept loving his sons. So it's this it's this beautiful pattern that I see coming out of the Epistle of James, of trying to find how all of the attributes of the gospel fit together rather than putting them into competition with each other. Chapter three is a, a sweet little gem in the midst of a bigger gem, this book of James. He, he gives you this intro by saying, behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us. And we turn about their whole body. So I don't know what most horses weigh, somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 pounds, depending on their size. And he's saying, you can take this little teeny tiny bit, put it in their mouth, and with the bridle, you can move this entire uh, horse whatever direction you want him to move with that little teeny uh, bit. Verse 4, ships, they're they're turned about with a very small helm. See, these huge ships. And with a very small rudder or helm, you can determine the direction. Oh, and by the way, that only works if the ship's moving. The bridle, the bit, it only steers you and takes you on a path if the horse is moving, if it's acting, if it's moving forward. The trick here is to make sure that the Lord has the reins or... The helm of the ship
1: and steering the ship that is our life. So then James gives the insight here, he connects it to our own lives. Verse five, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And in my own life, I think I struggle a lot with this one. I think I should spend more time listening to James and putting a bridle in my mouth.
0: It's fascinating, right? You, this is one of those lessons that some of us, speaking for myself, have to learn over and over and over again. Probably never once in in my life has there been a time when I've said something in anger or, or in frustration or pent up. You know, you feel getting, getting hot under the collar. There's probably never been once that 10 minutes, one day, five days later, I've said to myself, Oh, good job. I'm glad I said that. That was perfect. That was exactly what needed to be said. And I believe every single case, I have felt the need to go and apologize and to repent and say, I'm so sorry. There's always a better way to say things than in the heat of the moment. And for me, the essence of this is embodied in President Russell Wilson's talk from April 2023 German conference peacemakers needed the way he, he talks about the way we we communicate with people. The other wonderful talk for you to consider is the tongue of angels given by Dr. Jeffrey Holmes many years ago in general conference where he addresses James chapter three in incredible detail and beautiful principles for us to follow.
1: So you can look then at verses 1 through 12, and it really focuses on the wisdom of how to manage your tongue. So now, if you want a little con-
0: contrast here, he gives you verse 14, 15, and 16 as the bad example of what happens when you just, you just say what you want to say, do what you want to do, live your life. Uh, cut off from God's laws, pretty much, just doing whatever the natural man or natural woman dictates. And he says, verse 16, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work.
1: I think about our modern day today. Have you ever seen confusion in the media, social media, in your personal interactions with people? And is it because many of us are talking before we know what we're talking about? Now, as good humans, we feel strongly and passionately about things. And the invitation here is to make sure we're grounded in what's true, real, lovely, godly before we speak. And like Tyler, the times in my life where I've had regrets, I've had to go back to people and say, I actually uh, I approached that wrong. I communicated unfairly or inappropriately. It's because I speak without having full knowledge. And I think the invitation we hear is. Let's make sure we really know what the truth is before we let our mouths go on what we think is going on in the world so that we don't contribute to the confusion and the mayhem and the evil speaking that's going on in the world. It's just most of it's unnecessary. Actually, i should say all of it's unnecessary. All of it.
0: All of it. And, and if you look, he, he gives you the ideal in verse 17 and 18. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown the peace of them that make peace. Once again, President of thought, peacemakers needed. And our world desperately needs them today. Which now brings us to chapter 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? He's saying that all of the bad things you're seeing out here externally, they all start internally with individuals, allowing that internal war to be lost to the lusts of the flesh or the the natural man, natural woman instincts in us that then get translated into harsh words, harsh deeds, and, and violence and evil then can spread into the world. Um, Look at verse 3. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. I love the fact that we worship the God of the universe, who he knows everything, and he knows how to give the best gifts to his children, and when and how to give those gifts. So it doesn't mean that every unanswered prayer means we were asking for the wrong thing, It just means that if we are asking amiss, we're asking for something to consume it on our own lusts, those usually aren't prayers that God is going to answer. So what a difference it makes, I have found, following the example of of our prophets, to spend more time seeking to counsel with the Lord rather than seeking to counsel the Lord, rather than telling Him what to do for me. Asking Him, Heavenly Father, this is the situation I'm in. Guide me. What would thou have me do? What should I even be asking for? What is the direction that would have me go? Uh, He's more likely to answer those kinds of questions as I then get up and move forward like a ship or a horse, giving him the reins or the helm of the ship.
1: We haven't mentioned this yet, but James uses a lot of exhortation or the command form of verbs, like telling people, what they should do, or giving them strong encouragement to take action. If you look through chapter 4, it goes on and on with all these really powerful invitations. Things like uh, verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Verse 8, draw nigh to God. He will draw an eye to you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Verse 9, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. So again, James is just not trying to speak in flowery parables, which are a powerful way of teaching, but to be clear, direct, and unmistakable. So if if you're ever looking for immediate encouragement for something you can do to be more like Jesus Christ, you can turn right here in the book of James, any chapter, and find a command form of, here's one invitation we can work on today.
0: And to take that into these next two verses, notice verse 11, speak not evil one of another, brethren, Have you noticed how easy it is to point out character flaws or perceived imperfections in other people? Anyone can do that. It's a a very godly and Christ-like thing to be able to see the good and to speak positively, wherever possible, about our family members, our colleagues, our associates. And after all, there's nothing, there's nothing virtuous, there's nothing redemptive uh, that will help us by pointing out what's wrong with everybody else. It it doesn't make us better. It doesn't, it doesn't help us become a better person. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother speaketh evil of the law and judges the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then he clarifies. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? He's saying, look, the lawgiver happens to also be the only one who is authorized to do the judging. So we who are imperfect at keeping the law, we're pointing out what's wrong with everybody else and how they're breaking the law. So we're judging the law when it's only the lawgiver who knows everything and can make those judgments.
1: So there's two thoughts here. One, first of all, we should always be asking, Lord, is it I? Where am I falling short? And then second, President Oaks some years ago gave a great talk about judgment, what it means to give righteous judgment. That we are not in charge of putting final judgment on anybody, but as children of God, we do have to we do have to choose about who we spend time with or who we don't. We we can't simply. Um, ignore the fact that people might be doing evil things, but we have to be careful not to label people as evil who might be conducting evil actions. So there's a bit of a nuance there. And finally, the invitation is, we first have to check ourselves, am I in line with God before I start trying to require anybody else to use their agency the way I think they should.
0: It's a beautiful, the difference, with, uh, President Knox's article on the difference between intermediate judgments and final judgments. It's a powerful, powerful concept. Which brings us to our final chapter of James, and he opens by saying, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Now, again, keep in mind, this is James, who's leading the church in Jerusalem. He's taking those Christian uh, saints, those Jewish Christians, through intense adversity and persecution from the Jews, as well as a famine, they they've got a lot of poor people, and they've sent out requests for donations to the poor, and they've gotten mixed mixed responses. Paul, remember, in the book of Acts, in one of his missionary journeys, he's going to bring some money from from Ephesus and Corinth and some of those uh, saints outing the the Greco-Roman diaspora region. But you can picture the frustration of James when he sees such a huge need and he knows that God has given resources out there, but they're not coming in. So he's not condemning everybody who happens to be rich. Or have some form of wealth. He's condemning people who are holding on selfishly to those riches and even perhaps getting to the point where they're treating those riches
1: as their God. What gets worse than that, it's clear that some of these people, again, he's speaking to a limited group of people, and he says in verse 6, I'm jumping ahead, ye rich people have gotten yourselves into power because of your wealth, which has allowed you in positions of judgment to condemn and kill the righteous or the just. So imagine some poor people who don't have all the power and wealth, but they're living good lives, and perhaps they get taken advantage of by those who have the means to take advantage. Jacob talks about this, a brother of Nephi, same name, Another actually. Jacob. I not thought about that before. He says something similarly. He talks about how God wants to enrich any one of us with the wealth of material resources or education or learning or relationships. There's many ways to be enriched. But all of those are meant to serve people. If God's going to serve you with those things, then it is our job to also serve others. Instead of using the means of salvation to persecute or hurt people with the wealth that we've received. That is a a serious form of injustice. To take the resources, wealth, whatever God has given you, and to hurt others. Or to make life hard for them because they don't have what you have.
0: Yeah, some of, the, some of the most Christ-like people I have interacted with have been on both extremes of, the, of what you would call the, the monetary scale. Some of the poorest people that I worked among in, in my mission down in Brazil, some of the most Christ-like people I've ever seen fit into that category, and some of the richest people in the world that I've interacted with, and I've seen how God has given them such an overabundance of wealth and how they're using it to build the kingdom of God on the earth in these latter days. It's inspiring to see it across the spectrum. So again, back to Jacob chapter two, before ye seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. That's the trick.
1: So I work, uh, I teach in a business school and I help students learn a process where they can Build the kingdom of God, meaning they can help deliver solutions to people's problems. And when people have solutions uh, that they want, they will pay people to get those solutions. And if you solve enough problems for enough people, you might actually make quite a bit of money and resources. And like Tyler, I've been able to interact with lots of really incredibly, uh, I would say, dedicated people who've been dedicated to making the world a better place every ounce of goodness they bring into the world is building the kingdom of god and then it's like they've magnified the world they have grown hundredfold you know what they do they take that hundredfold and they replant it and they grow it even more and they help more people so it's helpful when we look at james he's not just saying anybody who's ever had any wealth is just a bad person he is just reminding all of us we all have wealth of some form or another are we using it to build and expand god's kingdom remember Any ounce of goodness that you bring into the world, any inch of progress you bring of goodness in the world is building the kingdom of God.
0: Now, in these middle verses of chapter 5, he starts addressing the second coming of the Lord. And kind of along the same line of an imminent coming that Paul had kind of talked about back in 1 Thessalonians, you remember? Look at his wording here. Verse 7, be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Now jump down to verse 8. But ye also be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. If I were reading this book in the first century, kind of like reading First Thessalonians, I was saying, oh well, the Lord's gonna come any day now, any week now. So what do we do? When instead of focusing so much on the timing of the Lord's coming, what should I then focus on? Verse 11. But we count them happy which endure. And how long do we endure? The gospel phrase is endure to the end.
1: i to build on just really briefly. Um, I had the privilege of being in in Israel back in April of 2023. And unbeknownst to me, uh, Elder Guttdorf came and spoke in church the day that i was there i didn't know he was going to be there and among many amazing things that he taught uh, those of us who were there was a district conference for uh, those uh, members of the church who live in israel one of the things he taught was he talked about the last days and the coming of jesus christ and he said i don't know when it's going to happen and i do hope that whenever it happens or if i die before it happens i am found living The gospel of jesus christ enduring well and so elder uchtdorf in israel right there near the mount of olives where we're all waiting for jesus to come back prophet of the lord echoes what jesus's half brother echoed 2000 years ago in the same city let us endure well and whether jesus shows up now or later let us be found ready for him in any state in which he he comes
0: and isn't the ending of verse 11 beautiful, tied into what you just said? The Lord, just remember this, the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. He's filled with pity for us. He, and, and this mercy, compassion, empathy, and filled with tender mercy. In other words, we don't need to endure anything in isolation or, or feeling cut off because we never are cut off or isolated from the world. He's a Lord of of great pity and tender mercy. So what do we do when we are struggling? Verse 13, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. I wonder if collectively, as a group, we're living beneath our privileges when it comes to seeking, asking for, in faith, for priesthood blessings. That perhaps there are more, more opportunities to receive not only God's healing and His mercy, but also His grace and forgiveness of
1: sins through this process. Tyler, this makes me think of a verse my friend, Kent Brown, um, a former professor of religion at BYU, and a great, thoughtful scholar of the Scriptures, shared with me. Just recently, he talked about Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, the Passover meal, the last meal for Jesus. And he says to his disciples when he's giving them the cup of Passover to symbolize how God saved the people from bondage. Verse 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. For the remission of sins, and my friend Kent Brown pointed out, might it be that whenever we partake of that sacred covenant of partaking of His blood symbolically, that that is a moment of remission of sins? We get baptized with remission of sins. Can we get it every week as we partake of His blood? I find that a very, very powerful message that perhaps I haven't fully thought about, even though I try to be thoughtful every Sabbath meeting.
0: And we do that collectively with all of us reconnecting with God in a congregation. It's beautiful. Verse 16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I think we would say today the the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person availeth much. That power that comes. I've seen it over and over again in my extended family when there's a need and people join together. I've seen these rewards and stakes. We've seen it collectively as a church back when COVID was was raging. We, we've seen the power of these effectual, fervent prayers coming together. And then he gives the example here to finish off of Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are and he prayed earnestly and he caused a famine for three and a half years to come down. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. He's using that as a little example, keeping in mind his audience is Jewish Christians. They know this Old Testament story very well and he's now bringing that to bear in this faith and works coming together as an example of what happens when somebody prays in real faith and then moves forward doing their works in faith, what the Lord is able to do through them and with them.
1: And then he concludes these two more verses and it's a bit of an odd ending because there's no like formal conclusion in this letter. Again, it seems like James is trying to bring together all this really great, easy to digest wisdom that anybody could pick up at any point, grab any verse and say, I have inspiration for today for how I can be more like Jesus Christ. And we we concluded some really powerful points, but without a formal final conclusion after verse 20.
0: I love, I love verse 19, 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his ways shall save a soul from death and shall hide it. multitude of sins. That's pretty good motivation to get involved in in missionary work. You look at verse 19 and 20. But perhaps way more important than that is to see, once again, the Lord Jesus Christ through the lenses that James is providing for us here as his half-brother. There is nobody who did more to save souls from death than did Jesus. And there is nobody who hides multitudes, infinite multitudes of sins more than Jesus. And at the end of the day, we love the Lord. We desperately want to become more like him. And so it's not just in in this concept of verse 19 and 20, but it's, and it's not even just these five chapters from James's general epistle to the scattered tribes of Israel. It's all of the scriptures in one They're not in competition. They're in cooperation, and the thing that they're all cooperating in is inviting us and encouraging us to come unto Christ and be perfected in Him.
1: I am so grateful the scriptures have been preserved over all these centuries and that we have these various voices that help us understand different aspects of the gospel. I love the encouragement we get from the brother of Jesus Christ, from Jacob, otherwise known as James and wherever you are in your life if you're feeling discouraged or uplifted you can turn to James and find something today that you can apply to your life and find yourself even closer to Jesus Christ so let's finish by going back to a concept very early on in
0: this in this epistle if any of you lack wisdom let us ask of God to give to only the province and in not, and it shall be given the him, him. We know that he lives and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved
1: and spread light and goodness.